History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... Bless my bots, it's a Star Wars special! History happened everywhere. Hello there. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the Stormtrooper to my target. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Not famous for their <laughs> accuracy, are they? That was a subtle critique, Ryan, but uh, hopefully you'll hit the target today. Stay on target. We're too close. Stay on target. Now, obviously, last week, the Dursleiter gave us episode 71, Wood in the Star Wars Galaxy during the High Republic. This is in celebration of May the 4th. May the force be with you. Mm -hmm. So, Ryan, what have you got for me? We are going on a mission to find wood in a galaxy far, far away. We're doomed. We're going to learn what the heck the High Republic is and understand how it happened both a long, long time ago and yet has only really just got started. We're going to meet the Jedi, who has over a hundred words for wood. We're going to wrap our vines around the dark side of vicious vegetation. And we're going to see what wood has to do with the things that Yoda says. <laughs> Welcome to the golden age of light versus dark, where knights battle pirates and prequels and sequels are far, far away. Oh my god! Welcome to the home of the Galactic Republic and Force-sensitive species. Prepare for the jump to hyperspace, because we're ready. Entering the world of Star Wars. Well, I'm excited. You had me at Angry Vegetables or something similar. <laughs> so, Ryan, get us started. When and where are we? Obviously, we normally orient ourselves on this planet, but we're somewhere very different, aren't we? We are. So let's start with the basics. The universe is everything. It includes all of space. The stars, the planets, all matter, all energy, everything. It's so big that we can't see all of it. And spread across the vastness of this observable universe are countless numbers of galaxies. These are groups of gas, dust and billions of stars, hundreds of thousands of light years wide, all held together in a cluster by gravity. And one of those galaxies is the Milky Way, a collection of around 100 billion stars, one of which we know as the Sun. But as imagined by George Lucas, there is another galaxy far, far away from the Milky Way, and it's this unnamed galaxy where the events of Star Wars takes place. Said to be enormous, the Star Wars galaxy is home to over a hundred billion star systems, each one having their own planets, territories, colonies, people and creatures of all shapes and sizes. The exact size of the Star Wars galaxy is unknown, but it's described as a vast and sprawling place, at least the size of the Milky Way, estimated to be 100,000 light years across, which makes it one nonillion, 100 octillion times the size of France. <laughs> I did wonder that they never raised that in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's the number 11 with 30 zeros at the end. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the Star Wars galaxy is divided into four main regions. At the centre, you've got the core worlds, which is where most of the civilised species, in quotes, live. Then you've got the mid-rim, which is a mix of sort of civilised but also lawless worlds. And then there is, on the outer sides, the most remote and unexplored regions of the galaxy, which are called the outer rim and the unknown regions. 
I think that's the Star Wars here be monsters, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the state anthem for the Galactic Republic has some controversy surrounding it, but it was definitely the official anthem at one point and still might be in the future, but that's not confirmed yet. And the only version available for us to hear is an uncredited composition by a fan. A message of hope and unity, all stars burn as one, sounds a little something like this. Well, I'm liking this. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit sinister, a little bit sweeping. It's got epic tones. I'm ready to fight for the Republic right now. <laughs> or the Empire. I'm not sure. I haven't picked a side yet. <laughs> oh, this is dramatic. I'm liking it. There's a lot of marching going on. Yeah. I could plant a flag to this. Oh, yeah. This planet is mine now. This makes me think we should rewrite all Earth's national anthems to be this stirring. How about that, right? That was cracking. I like that. Now, it is traditional, as you know, on HHE Podcast to sample some traditional food and drink from the places we visit, and the Star Wars galaxy is no different. Sadly, I couldn't get any roast porg, any Nerf steak or polystarch puff bread. Oh. I know. I'm, I know that's your favourite. But <laughs> I was able to source the recipe for one of the most famous beverages. Famously drunk by Luke Skywalker in the original movie Star Wars A New Hope, Blue Milk. Yum! Yeah, so banthers are the woolly mammoth-looking four-ton herbivore with curved horns that's shown living on the desert planet of Tatooine. But they're actually one of the most abundant species across the entire Star Wars galaxy. So if there was to be a national animal, the banther would probably be it. So banthers are found living on a vast number of planets and often domesticated. They're harvested for their meat, their fur, as well as their milk, which is known for having sort of this opaque blue colour, but also being refreshing, sweet and fruity. So when Disney opened their Star Wars Galaxy's Edge attraction at Disneyland in May 2019, they made sure that they had blue milk on sale for visitors. So you could buy your own lovely glass of blue bantha milk. And so, based on that recipe, I have made some replica blue milk for us to try today. <laughs> So I have to say, right, from a trading standards point of view, you're in the clear. This is blue and it's milky. So halfway there. It's cold. It's uh, cold. It's like a slushy, isn't it? It is like a slushy. Yeah. Which makes me wonder what the bantha have been doing to be excreting frozen milk. <laughs> but, you know, you're on a desert planet. You want a nice cold drink. All right. How are you finding it? It's coconutty. I've got coconut. Must be their diet from uh, all the coconuts. All the coconuts, yeah. Space, space, space coconuts, I guess. That's actually quite delicious. Yeah, it's, a, it's refreshing, isn't it? Uh, it's fruity because it's got some exotic fruits in there. It's got pineapple. It's got dragon fruit essence. It's got watermelon, coconut milk. It's got rice milk. It's uh, blue food colouring, funnily enough. <laughs> anyway, recipe will be in the show notes. So uh, have a look at the episode description for this show and you'll be able to see how to make your own blue milk. That's a delicious blue milky milkshakey slushy fruity con combo isn't it that's actually really nice yeah very nice very good nice one star wars
Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Nice telescope. Are you doing a bit of stargazing? What? No, no, I'm trying to watch Star Wars. Pete, what do you mean? Well, you said that light from galaxies far, far away takes time to travel through space, right? Yeah. So if Star Wars happened a long, long time ago, then the light should be reaching us now, and that means I can watch Star Wars in real time. Ryan, that's ridiculous. It's not, because I'm looking at the Death Star right now. What? Let me see. Ryan, that's not the Death Star, it's just the moon. That's no moon, it's a space station. It's too big to be a space station. Okay, but how do you explain the other night then, when I saw Princess Leia wearing her sexy sleeve outfit? That was the neighbour's wife, Ryan, and she's very angry about it, and he's furious too. I have a very bad feeling about this. So, Peter, now we're oriented on the Star Wars galaxy and have a belly full of delicious blue milk, I'd like to tell you about the history of the Star Wars timeline. Help me, Ryan Weir. You're my only hope. (laughs) But first, I need to clarify which timeline we're talking about, because up until 2014, the Star Wars timeline was famously a nightmare for people to unravel. In 1977, George Lucas created the first in the original trilogy of films that told what he said was chapters four, five, and six of what was promised to be part of a larger nine-chapter saga. But in the success of those three movies, demands by fans for more Star Wars stories meant a literal flood of novels, comics, and video games. Each of these expanded the Star Wars galaxy further, introducing new lore and new history for familiar and new characters over a period that covered 25,000 years. But there wasn't much in the way of any consistency between these stories. They were just sort of adding new information without considering the wider timeline. And so the movies became different to the books, apart from some of the books. The books were different to the comics, apart from some of the comics. The video games differed to the movies, the books and the comics, apart from some of the movies, books and comics, and so on and so on and so on. Over 25,000 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Basically, things had just sort of gotten out of control. It became virtually impossible to keep track of what happened to whom, where and when at any point within the Star Wars Galaxy timeline. That was until, in 2012, George Lucas sold the rights of Star Wars to Disney for $4 billion. This deal removed Lucas from creative control and allowed Disney to create a new, single, cohesive timeline that discarded much of the expanded universe and simply followed the events of the movies and the TV shows, basically giving fans an official truth that they then called the Star Wars canon timeline. All the comics, the books, the video games going back 30, 40 years, rather than being trashed completely, they were just simply rebranded, rebadged as part of the Star Wars Legends. So now we have the canon and we have the legends, and that's kind of how it's been. Disney have stayed true to that premise, making sure that all new Star Wars stories that they produce must be tied to the official canon timeline, apart from a few small exceptions, but we're going to skip over those. So in April 2023, during their annual Star Wars celebration event, Disney made another announcement about the canon timeline, and they updated it with a revised structure that clearly separated all of the timeline's most notable events into eight distinct eras. And it's that timeline which we're going to be using today. But before we look at those eras, we need to first talk about the Star Wars calendar, because on Earth, we separate our timeline according to dates either side of Common Era, with dates being either before the Common Era, BCE, or the Common Era, CE. 
But in the Star Wars galaxy, their version of the common era is when the Galactic Empire's superweapon, the Death Star, was blown up by Luke Skywalker during the climactic Battle of Yavin. So all dates in Star Wars are classified either before the Battle of Yavin, BBY, or after the Battle of Yavin. A-B-Y. So with that understood, and a short warning about there being spoilers ahead, let's start at the very beginning of the timeline. A long, 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 long time ago. Ah, Gary! How did the meeting with George Lucas go? Not great, to tell you the truth. How do you mean? Well, we had the meeting. Great. And I said, Disney is not interested in buying Star Wars. Perfect. But then he said, you are interested in buying Star Wars. Right. So I bought Star Wars. You did what? But I just felt compelled to. Bloody hell, Gary, we don't have the money for an acquisition of that size. Yeah, yeah, I thought that. That's why I lowballed him. Great. Then he waved his hand again. And? Well, we bought Star Wars for $4 billion. $4 billion? Yeah. But we can't afford that! I said that too, but he said we could. And you know, I really felt he was right. But this is going to ruin us! Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry, Gary, you had one job! I can't believe you'd be so reckless and stupid! What did you call me? I said, you are reckless and stupid. I'm not reckless and stupid. What what are you doing? You're going to give me a promotion. No, I'm not. In fact, you're fired. I'm not fired. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Okay, then. But you'll give me a big payout. No, I won't. Yes, you will. Get out. Fair enough. The first era of the Star Wars timeline is called Dawn of the Jedi. It begins many unknown thousands of years before the Battle of Yavin, when an energy field known as the Force comes into being. Early man appears. Early man. Early man, exactly. (laughs) And is comprised of three early peoples, the father, the daughter, and the son. The daughter embodies the light side of the Force, the son embodies the dark, and the father keeps the siblings from killing each other. As time passes, sentient beings evolve, and they spread throughout the galaxy, creating various trade routes between them. Interspecies collaboration exponentially increases with the development of a technology called hyperspace, which allows people to travel across vast distances of the galaxy incredibly quickly. And it's thanks to hyperspace technology, TM. (laughs) You, hyperspace technology. (laughs) That large sections of the galaxy can now be explored and new systems colonised. So, things are getting exciting in the Star Wars galaxy. Now, around this time, the first Jedi is born. We don't know much about this person, but a new film, again announced in April 2023, is said to be covering this very topic. So within the next few years, we will know more about the first Jedi to wield the Force. It's like when we've got archaeologists digging out things and we're learning things. (laughs) (laughs) So, regardless of this person's origin, though, what we do know is that other Force-sensitive creatures gather around this person on a planet called Akhtu, and they dedicate themselves to preserving peace and justice. That brings us to the Second Era, the Old Republic. And it begins with the Jedi Order expanding their influence across various worlds until one of their own, a rogue Jedi, he creates a splinter group, an order called the Sith. Boo! (laughs) 
<laughs> and <Sorry>. the two <laughs> got carried away there. <laughs> <laughs> and the two groups, the Jedi and the Sith, they battle it out in a war of darkness that lasts 100 years. Eventually, the Sith are defeated and they retreat to a planet called Moraband, where they regroup and they start spreading out slowly to other planets until eventually they actually establish an empire which briefly controls the galaxy. A thousand years later, the Jedi join up with a republic of interplanetary species and drive the Sith away. The Jedi's success short-lived, however, because they soon discover that the Sith have discovered a superweapon capable of destroying all life. Another Sith war is started, and it ends with the Sith being destroyed by one of their own, a Sith named Darth Bane. Bane has decided that the failure of the Sith Order was in being too structured like the Jedi, so he institutes the Rule of Two, which states that one master and one apprentice can be the only Sith in the galaxy at a time. Meanwhile, the Sith Wars have taken its toll on the galaxy, and the Old Republic reforms into the Galactic Republic, a democratic government consisting of elected officials from many of the different planets from across the galaxy. And with the Sith gone, the Galactic Republic in charge, and the Jedi maintaining order, there are hundreds of years of peace. Oh, golden age. That's exactly right. Now, around 500 years before the Battle of Yavin, we are now in the era of the High Republic, which is the focus for today's episode. As you rightly say, this is the golden age for Star Wars. It is a period of prosperity for the Republic, showcased in the construction of a gigantic space station called Starlight Beacon, which they've placed on the frontier of the most unexplored darkest zone. It does sound a little bit like a roller rink. The Starlight Beacon. <laughs> a roller disco. <laughs> <laughs> Their hope is that the station will symbolise the ideals of the Republic, showing how diverse cultures from countless worlds can work together peacefully. But all is not good, Peter. No. And not everyone is happy with the Republic's expansion. And one group of marauders called the Nahil begin a campaign of terror and chaos. The Nahil? Yes, these are the big bad for the High Republic. Ah. Think dystopian Mad Max-style space ravagers, rampaging across the galaxy, causing sort of chaos and devastation wherever they go. That is the Nahil. So the Jedi and the Republic work together to combat the Nihil threat, but things continue to escalate. In the year 232 BBY, before the Battle of Yavin, the Nihil destroy a Republic ship while it's flying in hyperspace. Now this hasn't happened before, and the resulting debris still travels within hyperspace, now becomes a deadly galaxy-wide threat, large chunks of metal zipping through space faster than light and hitting the surface of planets. So the Jedi spring into action, doing their best to sort of help prevent disaster, but entire civilizations fall and billions of lives are lost. I felt a great disturbance in the Force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. That would be devastating. The dinosaurs at least got a proper asteroid. Imagine you see something coming in and you go, hang on, that's got a steering wheel attached. And then you get wiped out. <laughs> devastating. Problem is, you don't even see it. It's travelling that fast. Uh, binoculars binoculars right yeah that, that, i forgot <laughs> hyperspace binoculars <laughs> anyway so confrontations continue between the jedi and the nahil but this only results in further devastation eventually peace returns but the republic and the jedi order are changed forever and so ends the events of the high republic and we enter a new era wait 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 what happened to the nahil did someone win or lose or it's just 
just keeps on fighting. The Nihil get scattered across the galaxy. And so they are still out there, but they're in the darkest zone, sort of just lingering. Okay, so they've been diminished, but not destroyed. But not destroyed. Indeed. All right. So ends the events of the High Republic. We enter a new era, one which is familiar to us because it's the basis of the prequel movies. Called Fall of the Jedi, this era begins about 50 years after the High Republic, and a group called the Confederacy of Independent Systems withdraws from the Republic, splits off, and threatens the galaxy with an army of droids. Roger, roger. The Republic Chancellor, a man called Sheev Palpatine, he commissions an army of clones to help fight those separatists. I did not know Palpatine had a first name. <laughs> That's news to me. Sheev. Sheev. Gary Palpatine. <laughs> yeah, so his clones fight the droids and the clone wars begin, with the Jedi and the clones working closely together to sort of battle the droid army. But secretly, Chancellor Palpatine, Sheev, <laughs> he's actually a Sith Lord called Darth Sidious. And he has ambitions to rule the galaxy by using his clone army to destroy the Jedi. Wipe them out. All of them. Meanwhile, on a desert planet called Tatooine, a Jedi master called Qui-Gon Jinn and his apprentice Obi-Wan Kenobi, they find a young slave boy called Anakin Skywalker, who has this unique and powerful connection to the Force. Qui-Gon recognises him as The Chosen One! Someone who can Bring balance to the Force! But before he can train the boy, Qui-Gon dies and Anakin's training is left to Obi-Wan to complete. Your apprentice, Skywalker, will be... But Darth Sidious has taken an interest in the boy too, and successfully manipulates him into turning to the dark side. It is unavoidable. It is your destiny. Finally revealed as a Sith Lord, Sidious ends the Clone Wars by using Anakin and his clones to betray the Jedi, nearly wiping them out completely, save only for a handful of Jedi, which then go off into hiding. Execute Order 66. The fall of the Jedi ends with Anakin sustaining life-threatening injuries and becoming the Sith apprentice, Darth Vader. So, following the prequels, we enter an era known as the Reign of the Empire. This is about 19 years before the Battle of Yavin. Now, this part of the timeline is covered extensively by many of the recent TV shows, like the cartoon Rebels, and in live-action shows such as Andor and Kenobi, showing us what life is like under the grip of Darth Sidious's galactic empire. There comes a time when the, the risk of doing nothing becomes the greatest risk of all. During this period, we see Darth Vader being tasked with hunting down any surviving Jedi, including Obi-Wan Kenobi, who himself is tasked with secretly protecting Anakin's twin children. A rebellion against the Empire grows, and we come to learn that a moon-sized superweapon called the Death Star is being built, which, when fully operational, will be capable of destroying an entire planet. No star system will dare oppose the Emperor now. A group of rebels steal plans for the Death Star and pass them on to a rebel princess called Leia Organa. Why, you stuck-up, half-witted, 
scruffy-looking nerf herder. That brings us to the Age of Rebellion, just five years before the Battle of Yavin. And this is where most of us will be familiar with the story as presented in the original movie trilogy. So, Leia Organa, the princess, who happens to be Darth Vader's secret daughter, is captured with the plans to the Death Star. A young farm boy named Luke Skywalker, who happens to be Darth Vader's secret son, I am your father. Discovers his connection to the Force, rescues the princess, joins a group of rebels, and helps to destroy the Death Star in an epic battle against Vader and the Galactic Empire. Solid summary. Following this victory, the Rebellion gathers support and the Empire rebuilds. Quite literally, in fact, because they simply build another Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> so, at this point, Luke learns that Vader is his father. No! And the princess his sister. Sister. The rebels battle against the Empire with the help of some furry teddy bears. Yep, yep. Vader is redeemed by sacrificing himself to kill the Emperor, and the rebels blow up the second Death Star. I suggest a third Death Star. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hold that thought. Okay, so nine years now after the Battle of Yavin, after that first blowing up of the Death Star, we enter the next era, the New Republic. In this period, the remnants of the Empire have retreated, and the rebels happily announce the formation of a new, demilitarized Republic. And so, with the Empire gone, this leaves a lot of sort of disarray across the galaxy, and crime and lawlessness has grown. People seek the services of bounty hunters, which is where the TV show, The Mandalorian, comes in, introducing a masked warrior called Din Djarin, who, in the course of his job, finds himself suddenly the protector of a Force-sensitive child called Grogu, also known as Baby Yoda. I would like to see the baby. Baby Yoda! Everyone loves Baby Yoda. Yeah. This is the way. Luke Skywalker at this point, now a Jedi, starts the construction of a new Jedi Order, which fails, and Luke, seeing himself and Jedis as the problem, steps away from life and disappears to become a hermit on a remote planet. Did your vision and Ryan's vision Did it coincide with the way that Luke ends up in this film that that you thought it would all these years later? No. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the galaxy, somehow the Emperor has returned. It doesn't matter how. Well, that Let's perfectly, move on. That's absolutely something. That was segue. That was beautifully done. <laughs> yeah. Tight narrative, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he's pulling strings again, and he's building a secret fleet of battleships ready to take over the galaxy again. <laughs> this takes us to 33 years after the Battle of Yavin, and we enter the era known as the Rise of the First Order. And this is the time of the sequel movies. So we're talking chapters 7, 8, and 9. This period starts with the remnants of the Empire gathering together under a new banner, the First Order, a group who are attempting to rebuild the Empire and control the galaxy through fear and intimidation thanks to their new super weapon, a giant planet-sized laser cannon. <laughs> a planet capable of destroying a planet, you say? <laughs> <laughs> what you brought me today is worth one quarter portion. Meanwhile, a force-sensitive woman called Ray Palpatine, Ray! the Emperor's granddaughter, joins a group of resistance against the First Order. If I'm honest, that would have been funny if you'd have gone, Ray Palpatine, no relation. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> so she joins a group of resistance against the First Order. The First Order use Starkiller Base to destroy the New Republic Senate, after which Rey and the Resistance have to work together to destroy the weapon. That's how we're going to win. Not fighting what we hate. Saving what we love. After their success, Rey discovers the location of Luke Skywalker and seeks him out, hoping to be trained in the ways of the Jedi, but instead is rejected by him. So she takes some of his Jedi books to learn from instead. The sacred Jedi texts! Uh, Self-study, that works too. Emperor Palpatine makes his big reveal, and a huge battle takes place. Rey resists turning to the dark side, and she kills her grandfather. I'm too weak! Oh, don't kill me! After which she rejects her heritage and takes the name Skywalker. No relation. <laughs> <laughs> and this closes out this era and the nine chapter Skywalker saga. This party's over. But things don't stop there, Pete, because the final era, which was just announced, is the new Jedi Order. Now, we don't know much about this era because it's pretty much just been announced. But what we do know is that this era will take place 50 years after the Battle of Yavin. And it will focus on Rey Skywalker as she attempts to create a new Jedi Order. I don't want things to change. But you can't stop the change any more than you can stop the suns from setting. In April 2023, a new film was announced, which is said to tell this story. So while that's the Star Wars canon timeline as we know it so far, expect much more drama to come. I'm ready. Yippee! Lord Vader, I present the all-new Stormtrooper 5000. That is interesting. This armor will stop a lightsaber this time, right? Well, no. Very well. But it is laser-proof, though, I assume. Not really. Not really. Well, no. Not at all. No. So what is the purpose of it, then? Well, I'm glad you asked, Darth. Picture the scene. It's the middle of battle, laser fire everywhere, and you've just had a brilliant idea. Right. Do you want to lose your idea forever in the heat of battle? I suppose I do not. So, what do you do? I remember it. Not with the Stormtrooper 5000. Simply pull out your trusty dry erase marker, turn to your comrade in arms, and... Kill them with it. No, no, no. What's that on his chest? Armour. Yes, and not only armour, but a handy whiteboard too. Perfect for brainstorming, workshops, jotting down notes, recipes and shopping lists. Well, I did fail to purchase milk after the last battle. Fine, I will take 500 units. Well, the deal was for a thousand. I am altering the deal. Pray I do not alter it any further. So what about wood? Yes, I felt that you drew a difficult card on this particular episode, Ryan. Wood in space is what I'm getting from it. Yeah, wood is not a significant material in the Star Wars galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> and I slashed him with my lightsaber and he in turn hit me with a branch. It's not... <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. Metals, alloys like durasteel and beskar, they play a much bigger role than wood in the Star Wars galaxy. <laughs> With spaceships, droids and weaponry all being much more commonly used than anything made out of a twig. There is a case to be made for a space society where wood is rare because, of course, we devastate our environment. What, what would you call it? I'd call it 
Star Wars would. <laughs> well, that would have really helped me, I'll be honest. It's a working title. <laughs> so yes, even in the uh, sort of prehistory of the High Republic, technology is still very much at the centre of things. But that doesn't mean that wood is entirely ignored. In fact, if you look closely, there is a whittle bit of wood all over the galaxy. A whittle bit of wood. Yeah, did you like that? <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> Off the top of my head, Jedi Master Yoda. He uses tree roots to make his home, and uh, he even walks with the help of a wooden stick carved from the Gaima bush. That's an astonishing detail. Yeah, well, the other bit of detail is is that even in death, he's seen using his walking stick. <laughs> he has a ghostly walking stick. Oh, man, do you mean he gets to the afterlife? He's like, oh, seriously, my knee still hurts? How could <laughs> <Yeah>. this be? <laughs> Uh, yeah, in Star Wars Return of the Jedi, the Ewoks, they live on a forest moon called Endor and they build their villages and weapons out of wood. In the Clone Wars cartoons, we're introduced to a species of three metre tall bioluminescent vegetal life forms called the Kindalo. Tree-like in appearance, they move about on two lower outgrowths and they have shoots for arms with four finger-like appendages. So tree people, basically. And the Oneti is described as being an incredibly rare species of long-lived, force-sensitive trees. In fact, we saw this tree in the movie The Last Jedi, where a hollowed-out Oneti tree is used by Luke Skywalker as a library to house the sacred texts of the Jedi. The sacred Jedi texts! Yeah, Croydon Council's trying to turn our library into just inner tree. That's, just uh, hollowing out the library. That's not... <laughs> <laughs> That's a very different thing. It's more they were trying to reduce the stock to enough to fit in a single tree. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Pete, none of those things occurred during the time of the High Republic. No good to us. Annoyingly for me. <laughs> so let's dive in and see what wood we can find during that period. All right, so we're going to start our woody adventure in the southwestern quadrant of the galaxy. In the mid-rim is a temperate jungle planet called Kashyyyk, which is covered in Roshia trees. This is a species of giant, long-lived, cone-bearing trees that could grow up to 400 metres in height. That's the same height as the Eiffel Tower. The interconnected branches of the Roshia tree form the foundation for entire cities for the principal species on the planet, the Wookiee. Ah, Wookiees! Exactly. Wookiees, tall, hairy humanoids that grow to nearly three metres tall. They also have extendable claws, which they use only for climbing because using them for violence is against their honour code. Weighing up to 150 kilos, that's 330 pounds, they maintain that weight by eating up to 6,000 calories a day through a diet of wild plants, berries and meat. The Wookiees are notable for speaking a variety of different languages. They speak uh, one dialect called Shiriwuk, which tends to be the more common one, but there's also Thikaran and also Zaxik. Next time I'm in Wookiee land, I'll be ready to go, ah, no, Zaxik. All of these different dialects, they all consist of growling and howls, such as, and Pete, I've got some here for you to try. Okay, I can translate this. I'm ready. I've, I've been right. doing, I've been at Wookiee night school, so I'm ready. Okay, so I've written these down for you, Pete, and here's the first one. If you could just say this in, uh, in Shiri Wook for me. Yep, no problem. Pretty sure I nailed that. That means, hello. <laughs> and the next one. Okay. Well, that's actually very good. <laughs> 
I'm a natural talker of Wookiee languages. <laughs> that is, I have a bad feeling about this. Exactly correct. That's what I was going for. <laughs> and the final one here for you, Pete, is this one. This is... uh. Oh, it stopped abruptly. That's, uh, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> no, I, I, well, it's an old Wookiee proverb. Is it? Yeah. And, it, and what you just said there is, people often mistakenly judge a tree by its branches, but a wise Wookiee knows its strength is in its roots. Right. We should sort of put it another way. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't get that. <laughs> I, 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 just, I'm, I don't have the ear for it. I think that's the thing. You didn't have a talent for languages, do you, Ryan? That's the problem. (laughs) But yeah, so talking of languages, um, they have a complex vocabulary. In fact, Wookiees have over 150 words for the word wood. (laughs) Where did you find that little nugget? (laughs) (laughs) That is regarded canon, so it's true. (laughs) I guess it's just like uh, Inuit here on Earth that have like 100 words for snow or whatever. Absolutely. There's the wood that you can make a bow out of there's the wood that goes the pulpy stuff you can make a slimy dinner out of it's all sorts (laughs) of wood yeah so often regarded as intelligent sophisticated loyal and trusting they're also known to descend into a berserker rage when angered and it's when angered that you might find a wookie using one of a couple of weapons made from russia wood which is incredibly strong and durable weapons like the bowcaster which is a powerful crossbow shaped weapon that combines wood with advanced technology Basically, it fires these powerful, high-velocity energy bolts that can penetrate armour and inflict tremendous damage on a person. I would argue it's the energy bolt you need to worry about more than the wooden part of that weapon. (laughs) Well, the wood is important because it's such a strong wood that you wouldn't be able to contain the energy that's given out by these bolts by any other kind of wood. I'm amazed that you had an answer for that and Pretty impressed, I have to say. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, uh, but when fighting, some Wookiees also use wooden staffs as sort of like a melee weapon too. These are handcrafted, again, from Roshia wood because they're so strong, and they're adorned with intricate carvings. The Wookiee's wooden staff might look simplistic, but in the hands of a skilled warrior, it is said that they can fend off multiple enemies with powerful strikes. So in terms of notable Wookiees, you'll probably be familiar with... Chewbacca's dad. <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> okay, Chewbacca. I'm going to say Chewbacca. So, yeah, so you might be familiar with Chewbacca. He is the loyal friend and co pilot of Han Solo, the captain of the Millennium Falcon. And while Chewbacca was actually alive during the time of the High Republic, albeit very young at the time, a more notable Wookiee from this time period was one called Buriaga Agabari. So, Buriaga Agabari is a seven foot four brown-haired Wookiee who was unique amongst his species for being a member of the Jedi Order. A Jedi Wookiee! Wow, I did not know you were allowed Jedi Wookiee. That seems like cheating. That seems like (laughs) too much in one package. Yeah, so appearing first in the 2021 novel Light of the Jedi by Charles Sewell, Buriaga is introduced as an apprentice whose experience as a Jedi is rooted in his Wookiee culture. He describes the Force as being like leaves on a gigantic tree with sprawling limbs. How would that sound if you were to say that, Pete? That's exactly... Sorry, I forgot that last bit. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) It yeah. didn't make sense until that last bit. I know, I know, I was confused. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he wields a blue lightsaber created from Merix, which is a rare fossilized wood from an extinct type of Roshia tree. 
I have to be honest, I was really hoping you'd say he's got a lightsaber, but it's wood. I'm like, that's just a it's club, just Ryan. A that's just a club. <laughs> like we all did as kids. Exactly. Just him making the noise. <laughs> exactly. Just Everyone looking at him, looking he's weird. <laughs> It's the first guy with it. It's like, ow! Oh, man, that really hurt. <laughs> I'm a Jedi. <laughs> anyway, he is known as the gentle giant of the Jedi Order. Or to put it another way. <laughs> so the complete story of Buriaga Agaburi has yet to be told. But as the High Republic series continues in books and TV shows, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of Buriaga. In fact, as of last week in terms of recording, set photos for the upcoming TV show, The Acolyte, which will be the first to show the High Republic in live action, showed an actor in full Wookiee costume looking remarkably similar to Buriaga Agabri. I'm ready for a Buriaga movie right now. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh it up, fuzzball. Our final letter is from Rogue Smuggler, and he's got a problem with his partner. Dear Sandra, I have a companion who is a Wookiee. We've been together for a long time, living in close quarters on board a spaceship. The other morning, we were sharing the bathroom when, after brushing my teeth, I gargled some mouthwash. But my partner heard the sound and thought I was saying a racist slur. I don't want to end up solo again. Please help. Dear Rogue Smuggler, dear oh dear, being with a Wookiee brings challenges and it's not all watching the sunset and drinking in the cantina. I think it's time to have a long talk, not just about the mouthwash, but about each other. Only by understanding each other will your companion gain the confidence they need that you are not, in fact, a racist. Failing that, you might try an apology gift, perhaps a voucher for a local grooming parlour. I hope this has been helpful. Thanks for listening. We'll have more next week, including I kissed my brother, but now I'm in love with his friend, and I told my partner I love him, and all he said was, I know. Okay, so in this next section, I want to talk about the dark side of wood. For the dark side of wood. wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, in 232 BBY, the Galactic Republic built Starlight Beacon. <laughs> <laughs> the roller disco. The roller disco, yeah, in space. It was a symbol of their commitment to peace and prosperity and a beacon of hope to those living in those darker outer rim territories. So Starlight Beacon was a home to a large group of Jedi and Republic from all walks of life. And in the High Republic novel Into the Dark by Claudia Gray, we find two Jedi who are preparing to relocate from the capital world of Coruscant to go live aboard this new roller rink stroke space station. <laughs> but on the journey there, they encounter a problem serious enough that they have to drop out of hyperspace, where they're then stranded far from civilization. Unfortunately, that's the least of their problems because a dying star is threatening to go supernova and literally within the next four minutes. Ooh, that's... 
awkward. <laughs> yeah. So luckily, they discover there is an ancient space station in the system which can provide them with shelter. So they quickly get on board the space station and they find it abandoned. So setting about exploring it, as Jedi are wont to do, they discover an area in the centre of the station which is overflowing with alien plant life. Now, surrounding the plants are some strange statues, which give the Jedi some super sinister feelings that they realise might be connected with the dark side of the Force. So, believing that it is the dark side, they agree amongst themselves that the best course of action is to remove these statues from the station in case the darkness breaks free. So they return back to Coruscant with the statues, and the Jedi together attempt to sort of exorcise the darkness from the statues, but fail. Realising that the statues were never actually meant to hold the dark side after all, they were actually keeping a protection around the space station from another evil presence. And so by removing the statues, the Jedi had actually released the darkness instead. I'm reminded of the British abroad, really. <laughs> oh, these statues should definitely come home with us for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so seeking to make amends for their mistake, the Jedi quickly rush back to the space station and put the idols back. But when they arrive, they discover the source of the darkness. It is a new and horrific species called the Drengir. No! So the Drengir are a sentient plant said to be born of darkness, hatred and pain. The Drengir are grown literally from seeds, which take root and grow into towering masses over five metres tall, just within a couple of days. They are a nightmare vision of pure evil. They have twisted tentacles made of poisonous vines, a mouth filled with vicious-looking teeth that they use to sort of eat the meat of all non-botanical species. In fact, their insatiable hunger for meat is their sole purpose and desire. They just move from planet to planet in search of food that they prefer to eat alive by pushing their vines deep into the ears, nose and mouth of the prey and then slowly draining the life away. Ooh. So created by comic book writer Kevin Scott, the Drengir were inspired by watching a scene from the original trilogy movie, specifically the moment where Luke Skywalker is sent on a training mission into the depths of the swampy woods of Dagobah to face the apparition of Darth Vader. And it was this scene which made him think of how nature has both a light and a dark side, with some parts of nature giving us beauty and sort of sustenance, and other parts just wanting to creep towards us and grasp the life from you. And that's what the Drengir do. As they move across the galaxy in search of food, they spread a darkness so great that only chaos and imbalance remains. Eat your vegetables before they eat you. That's the name of the next novel. <laughs> <laughs> now, you'd think this wouldn't be a big deal for the Jedi, but in the novel Into the Dark, the Jedi discover to their horror that the Drengir's wooden bodies are impervious to blasters and have the ability to regenerate quickly from lightsaber wounds. Remember, they grew to like five metres tall within a couple of days, so small little lightsaber slash ain't going to do nothing, son. Some sort of weed killer. <laughs> yeah, like what they need is cat urine. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'd sort them out eventually realizing that they are ill-equipped to fight their veggie foe the jedi simply open an airlock and blow the creatures out into space but yeah a new favorite villain has been born among the fans and you can expect to see much more of the drengir in the high republic stories going forwards i have to say they sound actually pretty awesome as a sort of conceptual creature I, i'm totally in support of that you know, Little Shop of Horrors? 
Yes. That's what yeah. the Dengue looked like. <laughs> Feed me, Obi-Wan. Okay, Peter, we have covered wooden cities, wooden weapons, and even species made of wood. But now I'm a little bit stuck. <laughs> because that's pretty much all the notable wood-related things that I could find. <laughs> so, let me tell you about comic books. Tell me more about comics, Ryan. So in 2020, Disney contracted the services of a publishing house called IDW to begin working on a new 13-part comic book series called Star Wars The High Republic Adventures. Published in 2021 to great acclaim, the story, written by Daniel Jose Older, focuses on a group of Padawans travelling the galaxy and learning the ways of the Jedi under the tutelage of Master Yoda. With artwork by Harvey Tolibau, colouring by Rebecca Nolte and editing by Elizabeth Fry, The High Republic Adventures scores 8 out of 10 on comicbookroundup.com and 4 out of 5 on Goodreads. Have you read these comics? Yeah, and they're a thrilling ride and I wholeheartedly recommend if you're interested in reading some fun adventures in The High Republic, they really are worth the go. But that's not really about wood, is it? <laughs> so there is one other thing that is wood related about the High Republic Adventure comic book series. And that is a graphic artist from California who was hired to do the lettering for that comic. And his name was Jake M. Wood. So I thought we'd stop talking about wood and hear from Wood instead. No way! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so now for those people unfamiliar with what a comic book letter is, it's basically the person who puts all the text onto the page, things like speech bubbles and sound effect noises and stuff like that. Now, Pete, you love comic books, right? I do, and it's an overlooked art lettering. It's uh, it's important. It makes a big difference to the comic, and yet it's, it's often overlooked. Well, look, let's have a listen to uh, Jake introducing himself. <laughs> My name is Jake Wood. I'm a graphic designer and comic book letterer for Star Wars sometimes. I was doing graphic design and like illustrations and stuff for a long time, but I saw a uh, job listing for a graphic designer for a publishing company. I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll be making like, you know, book covers and stuff. And then it was like, oh no, it's actually a comic book company, which is way cooler than I thought it was. Yeah. So I just started doing graphic design and got a little intro to like how the lettering process works. And then as it went on, just more and more books, you know, I started with Transformers actually, and then Star Wars and all sorts of other stuff that's just come my way, which has been really fun. So the man is a pop cultural phenomenon, Transformers and Star Wars. Yeah. So I asked Jake to tell us a little about the process of what goes into making a comic book and his part in it. And well, this is what he had to say. So it's totally different for all the different comics, but most of them have similar structure. 
Uh, it does start with the idea or a pitch similar to how like a movie or a show would be. And then the writer and the editors work on a script. Like it'll say brief synopsis of the setting maybe for this page for what they want the artist to draw. You know, like John turns around and looks out the spaceship window type of thing. And then it might say like, let's use these type of captions for this page. And then that'll be in there. And then they'll have the, the dialogue between the characters back and forth. And the editors are really kind of the glue that brings all the different pieces together. So they're in every aspect of the process, but then it moves to like pencil inks and like line art from the artist. And then usually after that stage, it'll go to the letterer who starts working on the balloons and the dialogue, taking what's on the script and putting it on the page to where it kind of makes sense with what's going on in the art. There's things like in the script, it'll be in italics or in bold or whatever. And there's certain things that will be for like conveying expression. You know, there's several drafts of the lettering where it'll go to the editors and they'll point out what should be in italics or what should be moved around. And then we'll go back and fix that stuff. And then there's this colorist usually. Sometimes it's the same as the artist, but a lot of the time it's another person who colors the line art and kind of brings in all the depth, the shadows, the lighting, that sort of stuff. And then at that point, I'll add sound effects over it. And then usually after that, it's pretty much all the pieces are set. It gets compiled together for like print production, stuff like that. But again, the editors are really going through every step of the process, making sure everything's working together. It's really easy to underestimate quite how collaborative a process a comic book is because you think of someone, one person doing it all, right? Drawing and writing. and But it's just not like that at all, is it? Just think of how aligned everyone has to be to for, for one to do the outlines, another one to colour that in, and a third one to do the speech bubbles and the sound effects, and that all to come together. That's remarkable. It is remarkable. But Jake told me more about being a letterer and what's involved. <laughs> Yeah, as far as lettering goes, there's always going to be like the dialogue, speech bubbles, and there's usually sound effects, depending on the comic. Some have way more than others. Uh, Those are always my favorite part to do. But there's also location, caption boxes for like internal monologue or narration, helping tell the story and like convey expression and tone of how the characters are talking. So if someone's yelling, I like to have the speech bubble be like a straight line coming straight out. So if you imagine lettering and the sound effects is like, like an actual physical element in the comic world, like as if you could actually see it if you were a character. If someone's yelling, the words are coming out fast. And sometimes I'll even have the words like breaking out of the balloon because they're yelling so hard. Or if someone's like whispering or talking like we are now, maybe I'd have them like swoopy, curvy lines. Kind of just helps the reader when they're looking at it. They can't hear the voice, but they can kind of see how they would be talking. It's actually a fun kind of puzzle to figure out because you do want to guide the reader's eye like you know to the next panel in the right direction but also maybe the open space is in a different spot than you would prefer it to be or something so it's kind of like the artist working with the letter to make sure that we're kind of helping each other flow in the right direction I'm not sure how it is at other companies, but for IDW, the editors and the designers and letters are a team in-house. So we have like a small team. So like for Star Wars, it'd be like the Star Wars team or the Transformers team or whatever. And the writers are usually hired from outside. I definitely work closest with the editors on a daily basis who are kind of relaying information from the artist to me sometimes. But I'll I'll hear opinions from the artist or the colorist all the time. Like if, if this is working or maybe this sound effect should be a little bit different color or something like that. 
Now, Peter, embarrassingly, I sort of showed my age by asking Jake what kind of stationery he uses, you know, pens and inks and paints and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but as he uh, kindly reminded me, technology is a thing now. <laughs> and so we talk a little bit about that. So it's pretty much all like Adobe programs on the computer. That's one of the hardest things about graphic design for me is I just am not a computer screen person, but that's just the most efficient way to do it nowadays, unfortunately. But it, you know, it works well. Uh, and one of the cool things about that is you can really like match like what the artist has already done in their illustrations and make the sound effects or the lettering feel like it's part of that world. So you can really color match things on the computer that way. Um, same texture, stuff like that. Uh, it just makes it feel more cohesive, I guess. We have just so many files archived that I can go back and open up and be like, okay, this is the font I used. For sound effects and stuff, a lot of the time I have all sorts of notebooks that I draw them in and then scan them in and retouch. But most of it is like Illustrator on the computer, yeah. Usually in the script, it'll actually have written out what the writer thinks the sound effect should sound like, but I'll change it up a bit just maybe to help me visually make it work a little better. So like maybe instead of 11 Vs for the whoosh, it's 10 or something. It's kind of cool to imagine in your head. Okay, what's look like, you know? I love that the idea that he's got a script that goes and he's thinking, well, he spelled that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> One too many Zs. Yeah. And of course, look, I asked Jake what it's like being part of the Star Wars galaxy. It's really cool, but it's definitely scary because people have very strong opinions, especially when it comes to Star Wars. So you do want to be pretty delicate with it. And I didn't know very much or anything about the higher public before that assignment, but I love Star Wars. I think it's so cool. I mean, even just a lightsaber, that's pretty much the coolest weapon ever imagined, you know, uh, but it's a cool setting. I like that it's set in a time where there's like, like almost the height of Jedis and Force users and stuff i think that's a cool part of it especially like the comic that i worked on it's a lot of like the younger jedis in training which i think comes with a lot of comedic relief too so that was fun but there is really a brand guideline for star wars and lucasfilm stuff so i can open up these files and see like how they like things done usually it's not so much as they have a specific one that they want to use but if it is like the comic for example i'll keep track of what i've been using so like okay the lightsaber noise is this font or like location captions we're using this one you know we'll change things up every now and then but fonts are pretty consistent and yeah <laughs> That must have been an amazing feeling to be working on something of which you are also a fan. That must be mm. really satisfying. But also, I mean, with great power comes great responsibility, right? That is a thousands, millions of people who absolutely love this stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Going to notice if you've gone, well, your lightsabers don't bend like that or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, if you get it wrong, you're going to hear about it. <laughs> but that's the genius of the High Republic is because most of it is is new, you can kind of be forgiven if things do that. Well, that was just what it was like in the High Republic. <laughs> Before they ironed out the kinks. <laughs> but finally, as a professional in the world of comic books, I asked Jake what sort of advice he might have for aspiring graphic designers, perhaps listening to this, that want to break into the industry. And and, well, this is what he had to say. 
If anybody's interested in really doing anything in the comic book world, lettering, writing, doing the art, having a portfolio is really a huge help. And it is tough when you haven't worked on stuff yet. But for example, my portfolio before this was conceptual projects that I made up. It wasn't for anybody, just for my portfolio. So I think that's a big help. Editors usually hires either the letterer or the writer or the artist. And the editors that I work with are constantly sharing people's portfolios amongst each other and online. So reaching out to them is probably the most likely way to get found. Just make stuff if you can and just share it. It's it's scary to share things, but I think that's the way to do it is you just got to make stuff and share it. I mean, as long as it's fun to do, keep doing it. That's the way to go, really. <laughs> Well, I've got to say, if there was ever a phrase that gelled with our podcast, just mm -hmm. make stuff and share it, that's kind of where we're at, isn't it? <laughs> and and have fun doing it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I really loved talking with Jake. He's, he's uh, just, one, he's just a lovely guy, but two, he's incredibly talented. And if you want to check out some of his work, then I'd really recommend you go and read the Star Wars High Republic Adventures comics, volumes one to three available. But his other work for IDW includes Transformers, King Grimlock, and the original series called Crashing, about a medical specialist who helps patients with powers in a hospital with a policy for no-powered patients. And if his skills with making comics aren't enough, he's also a gifted musician, so you can find him under the name Wireframe on Apple Music, Spotify and Bandcamp, where you can listen to his stuff, uh, including his latest EP, Decide to Stay. Links to all of those things are going to be in our episode notes. Oh, definitely check it out. So thank you so much, Jake. That was amazing and a great insight into a world that oh, a lot of people don't even think about. But as a comic fan myself, make a big difference to the product that you end up ingesting. Absolutely. So there you go. As much wood in the Star Wars galaxy during the time of the High Republic that you can shake a stick at. And I'll leave you with the immortal words of the Jedi. May the forest be with you. Always. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> For forest. May the forest yeah. be with you. Honestly, yes. I thought it was a, a thin thread that you were hanging on when you got to Wood, the letterer of the comics. But that I, that was genius. May the then you forest followed it up with, with a, you. yeah, don't, please don't. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well, Ryan, I have to say you did an amazing job with what can only be described as a challenging brief. <laughs> Part of me was hoping you'd somehow stumble upon the wooden spaceships, but uh, you actually found genuinely wood in the High Republic in the Star Wars galaxy without stretch, actually. I think you did an incredible job of nailing the brief. Well, thank you very much, Petey. But now the eyes of the audience swivel in their sockets to you this time. <laughs> they do indeed. So it's time to get the Dursleater out. Wheeler out. This is regular old Dursleater now. No special, special events. Okay, Peter, here we go. I'm ready. And your place is... Cape Verde. That is a set of islands just sort of off West Africa. Okay, cool. I know that because I was once involved in a project that had a code name, and the code name was Verde, after Cape Verde. Is this your time in the FBI? <laughs> I was a, it was a special project. I can say no more. Yeah, right. Okay, here we go. And your time period is... Okay, it's 1990 to 1995. Ooh, it's modern, that's solid. I, it's a, not a massive place, it's Cape Verde, so I'm, I, let's hope so. Probably something good happened. Uh, okay, and uh, your topic is... 
Uh, okay. <laughs> it's cutting corners. Oh, well, that gives me a certain option in terms of cutting my own corners, doesn't it? I suppose. That, <laughs> I guess all so, right, yeah. I'll I'll make something of that. That sounds interesting. Uh, Cape okay. Verde, I can do that. Well, there we go. So, episode seventy-two will be cutting corners in Cape Verde between nineteen ninety and nineteen ninety-five. Good luck, Petey. I will bring you interesting things. I can assure you. You better what else. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, the next episode decided that makes it this episode for this week. So thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just say hi, you can reach out to us through the website hatepodcast.com or you can email us at Pete and Ryan at hatepodcast.com. Yeah, we do love to hear from you unless you're an embittered Star Wars fan, in which case anything that I got wrong, I do apologise for now. <laughs> no, no, no. Send them in. Send them in. I want to hear them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> if you do get in contact, you almost certainly will end up featured on a future show. If you are on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or Mastodon, you can find us at HHE Podcast or you can contact us using The Force. <laughs> yeah. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content like facts we didn't use, photos from the show and recipes for Bantha Blue Milk. And definitely some pictures of the Bantha Blue Milk that we made. That's right. Uh, we'll be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to Ryan and Jake. Yeah, thanks to Jake. Definitely. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... Listening to you have been. <laughs> History happened everywhere. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. You'll never guess what. What? I bought a droid. You bought a what? I bought a droid, like in Star Wars. Like R2-D2 and C-3PO? Yeah, I call him T-4-2. Well, that is exciting, I must say. What does he do? Well, what do you mean? Well, C-3PO translates and R2 is a service droid, so what does your droid do? Oh, well, T-4-2 makes T-4-2. All you have to do is add the tea bags and the milk and the sugar and, and he does everything else. So it just boils water. Ryan, that's not a droid, that's a kettle. Right. And when you've drunk too much tea, you can use ICUP. What's that? Well, that's my bathroom droid. ICUP. Uh, Ryan, is he a toilet? Yeah, he's a toilet. Ryan, you're a 1D10T. I don't get it. Exactly. Oh, I've got brain freeze. Oh. <laughs>